listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, at least y'all made it to the late service this morning. The eight o'clock people will be much closer to Jesus in the kingdom than y'all. But you are here, so I'm thankful. I will say this, uh, all joking aside, so a couple weeks from now, we have Easter Sunday, and uh, we really are asking our members, especially, last year, uh, we have three services, 8, 9, 30, and 11, just like normal, and uh, last year, we had about 600 people at the 8 o'clock service. We need about 750 uh, at that service, because we're expecting between 2,000, 2,500 people to come through our, our campus that Sunday morning, which is about 1,000 more than normal. And, and that's not an underestimate. That is about accurate as firm every year. So that means that you, if you can, come to the 8 o'clock service. If you were at the 8 o'clock last year, go again. And if you can, then show up at 8. Just call grandma, put the seersuckers out the night before, and say, we'll be there at 11 instead of 1230. But we need you to come to the 8 o'clock if you can, uh, just to make space for people that may not have a church home, that may uh, be coming to church on their twice a year Christmas and Easter uh, Sunday uh, for an opportunity to hear the gospel. And so uh, we're going to use all available places on campus. The video venue will have live worship there. Uh, we're just going to utilize our space as best we can, celebrate the resurrection. So please come at eight. If you want to really get into heaven, for sure, come to eight. Okay, <laughs> not really, but later. go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 26. As you study, I'm a fan of history, read a lot of history. As you study history, especially like the battles of the great battles of history, and you know, with names like Waterloo or Stalingrad or Yorktown or uh, Rocky versus Drago, these great battles that influenced history, what you see is that the battle is actually not won in the battle, it is actually won before the battle, that there are decisions and choices that are made prior to the actual conflict that determine the outcome of the battle, right? That's, that's what you see. And so we are in a spiritual battle. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us, our, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Some of you, you act like our battle is against flesh and blood. Your, your battle is against the other political party or your in-laws or your spouse or your kids or your kid's teacher or your kid's coach or whatever it is. That's where you act like your battle is. But your battle is actually not against them. It's against the rulers and the powers and the authorities of spiritual darkness. And you cannot fight that battle like you would a physical battle. But what is also true is that battle is not won in the moment. It is actually won prior to the battle. That there are choices and attitudes that we make prior to the battle that determine the outcome, victory or defeat. And, and what we want to do today, as we look at the text, is to say, how do I win the spiritual battle that I'm in? Because that decision comes before. How do I fight the spiritual battle that I'm living in? Those decisions and choices come before so that's what we're going to look at today uh, as we unpack Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at verse 30 through 56. And what we're going to see is a contrast, like normal in the Gospels, right? We're going to see the Lord Jesus. He's been saying for time and time again, my hour is here, my hour has come, my time has come. The, the reason he was incarnate, that he became flesh, that he took on humanity, that he was born at Bethlehem, that has now arrived as he faces the cross. And we're going to see that he victoriously conquers the cross, the empty tomb. 
And there's choices that he's gonna make today prior to the cross. There's decisions that he's gonna make today prior to the cross that are, that are reason why there's victory. And then we're gonna look at the disciples. And there's choices that they make that determine their outcome, which is defeat, because we're gonna see them fall. And we wanna study and look and compare and contrast because we wanna follow the Lord Jesus and how he overcomes the spiritual darkness and the spiritual battle versus the disciples who fail, all right? So let me read the entirety of our text. It's a longer text, but it's a a one narrative, uh, the idea here from verse 30 all the way to 56, and then we'll unpack it together. Or give a running start with verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to become sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him and Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as a robber against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left and fled. So where we pick up where we left off last week, Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. At the end of that, they sang a hymn. And they headed out to the Mount of Olives. It was already a somber moment because Jesus told them, one of you will betray me. So they're already down and Jesus kind of doubles down on that. And he says, "Uh, all of y'all will fall away. Not betray, different word. Fall away, the idea is you'll take offense at me and because you take offense, you will sin. He says, all of y'all. And here's why. 
For it is written, this is what Zechariah the prophet says, and Jesus takes that prophecy and applies it to himself. For I, God the Father, is the idea, will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is what the scripture says. This is what's going to happen. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, the disciples apparently didn't hear that because they must have been debating. No, 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 no. But Jesus is telling them, look, you are going to be unfaithful, but I will be faithful. You are going to abandon me, but I will never abandon you. I will go ahead of you. But they're still all up in our, oh, no, we'll never betray you. So Peter, because he has to speak, speaks, and he says this. Though they all fall away because of you, Jesus, I will never. It's emphatic in the Greek. I will never do that. I, I wouldn't. They may. And, and he, he kind of double whammies himself. Number one, he tells Jesus, you're wrong. That's not true. We've seen that before. But then he says this. I'm better than them. They may, those knuckleheads, yeah, they probably will, but not me. I would never fall away. Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows Peter. And he says, truly, I say to you, I'm we're talking hours away, Peter. You're gonna deny me, not once, that you even know me. Not twice, three times. The last thing gonna be a little girl. And you're gonna be scared that you even know me. Peter says, no, even if I must die, I am ready to die for you. I would never do that. Never. And all the disciples, they join in. Yeah. I mean, he sold us out at first, but we're with him. We would never do it either. And what we see right up front is the first reason we spiritually fall. This is the first way to spiritual defeat. We see it in the apostles. And it says it's self-confidence. It's famous last words. I would never fill in the blank. I, I couldn't do that. This is Peter. Jesus, this is me. I'm, this is Rocky. You call me Rocky, remember? I'm the leader of these guys. I'm the one who walked on water. Yeah, it was only for a minute, but it was longer than them. I'm, I, I would never do this. I could never, would never, wouldn't think of it. I got this. We hear a lot in our world, a lot of our culture, self-help, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-image. Believe in yourself. You can do it. You can do it. And that's great for a basketball game. But in the spiritual realm, it's deadly. Because that's the exact opposite of where the scripture points us in the spiritual battle. It's not, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. No, you can't. In fact, the apostle Paul says this, that the one who thinks he stands, Peter, James, John, I'll do it. I'd never do it. I'd never do it. The one who thinks that they stand, you better take heed lest you fall. See, what the scripture points us to is not, you can do it. You can do it. Just believe in yourself. Trust your gut. Lean on your own understanding. It's not that you can, it's that you can't. In fact, the the very verse that Paul says, take heed, then he says, here's why you can have victory over temptation. Because God is faithful. Not you are faithful, God is faithful. Because God provides a way of escape. Not because you're so smart, because God does. Because God provides the strength the way the, the, tempta- the, escape, the, the limitation of the temptation. Not you. It's about God. Paul later says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Not you can do it. You can do it. You're strong. You've been a Christian 40 years. You've taught discipleship class. You've memorized this book of the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. None of those. No, be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of the Lord. Peter says, resist the devil and he will flee. Stand firm in your faith. We hear all these, you know, you can watch these televangelists. You just need to rebuke the devil. You need to speak to the devil. No, you don't. 
You don't need to rebuke anybody. It never, the Bible never tells us to rebuke the devil. I rebuke you. Say, no. It says to resist the devil. Firm in your what? Faith. Not in your strength, not in your ability, not in your gifts, not in your experience, not in your, you got this. Firm in your faith in the power of God. Because Jesus in a few verses is going to explain this. He's going to say this very famous verse. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. And the spirit there is not the, the, the big, the big S spirit, Holy Spirit. He's not talking about Holy Spirit. He's talking about the, the volition of man, your desire, right? Your will. You want, I know, he's not doubting their sincerity. I know you want to follow me. I know you want to do what's right. And I think most of us, if we're honest, be like, yeah, I, I don't want to sin. I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good employer. I want to be a good, good, good teenager. I want that. That's my desire. What's the problem? The problem is you have Adam's nature, the flesh, the spirit's there. Yes, the flesh is weak, which is why you can't say, I got this, I'm good, I'm strong enough, because your flesh is weak. And, and the reason so many in this room, if we're really honest and transparent, myself included, the reason we fail spiritually is because we don't take the spiritual battle seriously, we don't take sin seriously, and we treat it with I got this, I got this. I haven't fallen into that sin for years. I got a little coin that says 10 years. I haven't fallen off the wagon. I haven't done that. I haven't even thought about that. I could never, or we end up comparing. Look at that knucklehead family. They're crazy. We would never be like them. We would never do that. I can't believe they parent that way. I can't believe their kid did that. I can't believe he had an affair. I can't, I can't, I can't. And we forget if it wasn't for God's grace, that would be you. And you have the ability and the propensity to do just what every other sinner. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. Probably none of you have that written about you. And he committed adultery and he committed murder. And he wrote a lot of books of the Bible. And have you written any books of the Bible? So what makes you think that you're better than him? See, that's, that's where self-confidence gets you. I got it. I was confirmed at 13, baptized at 18. I taught a Bible study in college, blah, blah, blah. No one cares. Your past successes don't guarantee your future victories. You understand this. In fact, I would say they actually weaken you sometimes because the most susceptible you are is after a victory. So when you get in the minivan after church today, you should be waiting for Satan because he's there for you. Because you just came from a victory. I mean, you didn't wake up or come to early service, but you did come to church. <laughs> so that's something. There's a victory there. We just sang songs. That's a victory. Just read our Bible. That's a victory. Be ready. Because that's when the attack comes. And stop playing with sin as if it's no big deal. And we, play, we, do, we do this kind of price is right rules. As close as I can get without going over, you know, get close, but I won't touch it. I won't touch it. I won't touch it. And that's the kind of idea. I can handle it. I can handle it. And that's where one glass of wine becomes 12. That's where one little harmless glance becomes porn. That's where one, oh, it's just one night where we're just going to crash at the house becomes immorality. We flee. We cut our right hand off if it causes us to stumble. That's the opposite of self-confidence. I got this. And what you don't see in the text is Jesus saying, the cross, bring it on. I got it. Betrayal, no big deal. I'm the son of God, second person in the Trinity. I got this. That's what you don't see. 
The only people you see doing that is Peter, James, and John, right? And so look, look how this, this heart of Jesus and, and the opposite of self-confidence is what? It's humility and dependence. And this is what's gonna be flushed out in the chapter. This is where we go. This is the attitude of Jesus. This is why he's victorious and they're not. This is where we will find victory or defeat in, in humility and dependence. Look how he is dependent. Verse 36 says this. He went to a place called Gethsemane. Famous kind of, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this, this garden, Gethsemane. Um, it's one of the few places that we know for sure is still the same exact place uh, that it was 2,000 years ago. There's a little garden and a little church there today uh, if you go and visit Israel. And Gethsemane is just a, uh, a word, that has, it's really two words, it means oil press or olive press. It's an olive orchard. It's where they would take olives, they would crush olives, and they would make olive oil, okay? And there's a, a ton of significance and symbolism in the fact that Jesus is in this garden uh, preparing for the cross probably the, the most clear one is this. The scripture begins where? In a garden, right? The scripture ends in a city, a garden city, not New Jersey, New Jerusalem. There's nothing heavenly or garden-like about New Jersey if you've ever been there. That's why most of you moved down from there to here, okay? So it begins in a garden of Eden. It, be, it ends in this new Jerusalem, this garden city. And smack dab in the middle of the Bible, Jesus is in the garden again. The first Adam who was placed in the garden of Eden failed. He failed the battle when Satan attacked. Jesus, Paul calls the second Adam, the greater Adam. He will be in the garden, but he will not fail. He will win. The first Adam, after he sins, what does he do? He hides himself from God with some fig leaves. What does the second Adam do? He presents himself to God to do his will. That's, it's, it's hugely significant in the narrative of the Bible. Also, the, the idea of uh, even an olive press. The, the value of the olive is not in the olive itself. I mean, yeah, you can put it in your martini, great. But that's not the value of the olive. The olive value is when it is crushed and then dispensed of, and then it, you, but you get the oil. That's where the value is. And it's significant that Jesus is in this place where they're crushing olives, they're dispensing of olives, but the value is there where he will be crushed, Isaiah 53 says, for our iniquities. And then he will be dispensed, he'll throw them out. But where's the value then in that oil? And what is oil symbolic of in the New Testament constantly? The spirit of God, which is poured out upon his people. So Jesus will be crushed, he will be dispensed, but then he will fill his people and anoint his people with the oil of the Holy Spirit. It's just hugely symbolic of why he's there. But while he's there, look at his dependence and humility. Jesus went to Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to do what? To pray. Isn't that interesting? Jesus in his most intense moment and in his most needy moment, what is he doing? He's not like, all right, just before y'all, I got some instructions for you before I go, me being God and all. No, he is praying. See, when you're confident in yourself and you have self-esteem, you know what you don't do? You don't pray. That's the problem. Why would you need to pray? I know this. I got this. I've done this before. I've been a Christian for so many years. I haven't fallen in whatever. Why do I need to pray? The son of God who has never sinned in his greatest moment of need is doing what? He's praying. He's dependent. 
significant? Yes. And what does he also do? He brings his closest friends. He takes Peter and two sons of Debedee. That's James and John. He brings his inner circle with him. Right? Why? Why does he need them? Because he just needs them to be near. Because even though he is the divine son of God, he needs his friends. It's the ministry of presence. He doesn't need Peter talking and, and, and Peter giving him a lesson. or He just needs them. Why? Because he's dependent, because he is humble. He tells him, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Just be with me. Watch with me. Be near to me. You, my closest friends in the world. I mean, think of the contrast here. Between them, I got this, and Jesus is just needy. And then look what he prays. Going on a little further, he falls on his face. And he says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Father, I am weak. In his humanity, what is this prayer teaching us so much about Jesus? In his humanity, he doesn't want to go to the cross. You get this, right? He's not like zippity doo da. He's not walking up the hill. He is begging God the Father, take this cup from me. What is the cup? It's the cup of his Father's wrath. It's the cup that will be poured out on him, the full, intense wrath of God that was I deserve, what you deserve, poured out on him. It's not just he doesn't want to die. Many men and women have gone to their death nobly and with valor and courage. It's far beyond that Jesus is just going to die. That he who has been eternal, eternal intimacy in the past with God the Father will be rejected and abandoned by his own father for the first time. That fellowship will be broken. And instead of fellowship, he will feel fury and wrath that we deserved. That's what's going to happen. Some, you may, maybe you were abandoned by someone, a parent, a spouse, a teacher, a friend. You have never been abandoned by God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you never will. But he was going to be abandoned by his dad, which is why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And is that weight of that that is crushing him so intense? Luke's gospel says that he is sweating drops of blood. I mean, it's hot here, but I ain't never sweat drops of blood. That is the intensity of what he is looking for. And he's saying, Father, I don't want that in my flesh. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Help me, Dad, to do your will, not my will. Whatever your will is, that is what I want. Again, notice the contrast. Disciples, we got this. We would never. The Son of God. Help me, dad, help me. Why is one victorious and one not? Because this one lives in dependence and humility of the father. And these don't, these don't. And that's where the battle is won. It's not in confidence, it's in dependence, right? And so he's there praying, he finishes, he comes to his disciples and he finds them sleeping, of course. It's been a long day, I get it. Peter and John, they, they had to make that whole big meal, so they're tired, I get it. But he says to Peter, Peter, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? You'd think Peter's just so dense. You'd think this is something a little different. Jesus, we've been with three and a half years. He's never been this down. He's never been this sorrowful. You'd think they'd clue in, but they don't. He says, watch and pray. He's gonna use that word watch several times in this. Watch and pray. Why? So that you won't 
enter into temptation. Your, your spirit's willing. I know you don't want to do this, but your flesh, it's weak. And here's the second reason why we lose the spiritual battle. It's the reason why Peter and James and John and the rest of them did. Because they're sleeping. They're asleep. Not physically, you need to sleep. It's good. But metaphorically, they are asleep. Why? Because confident people don't need anything, so they can just sleep. And meanwhile, while you are sleeping spiritually, the enemy is scheming constantly to tear apart your marriage, to tear apart your testimony, to to get you back in that addiction, to bring you back to a place of doubt and despair and anxiety. That's what he is constantly doing. And if you are asleep, you will lose. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, you are asleep at the spiritual wheel. You have no clue what your kids are doing on social media. Their brains are being rotted. No offense, I'm not a perfect parent, but if you have your seventh grader with Snapchat, you're asleep. You're asleep. If you're letting your kids just watch whatever they want on Netflix, you're asleep. If you think that the things you put in your heart and your mind, you as a 40-year-old, as a 60-year-old, and you think it doesn't impact your soul, you're asleep. You're being bombarded with images and you need this, you need to be like this, you need to look like this, you need to have this to be happy, you need this, 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 this. And if you aren't recognizing that the evil one is scheming to steal your heart, you're asleep. Because he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God, little g, of this world. And he has all this influence. And if you are not recognizing it, you're asleep. You're gonna lose You're gonna lose. So what does Jesus say? Don't be asleep. Instead, here's what he does. Watch and pray. Watch. He says it several times. Be awake. Be alert. Pay attention. The enemy is scheming. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy this. You gotta be awake. You gotta be alert. And the areas that you are weak, and you know those areas. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's gossip. You need to be double alert and aware. And you need to be aware of your strengths too because we often were like, oh, I'm strong over there so I'll just focus on my weaknesses. That's exactly when the enemy comes in the back door. You just need to be alert in general, alert, aware that you are living in a spiritual battle that the enemy is constantly trying to attack you. You need to be alert. And what I love is this, it's okay to fall, but you gotta learn. And Peter learns from his sleepiness. You know I know? Because when he writes his first letter, he says this, be sober, be watchful. He uses the same exact Greek word that Jesus used. Be watchful, why? Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. How how does he know that? Because it happened to him. But he's not gonna let it happen again. So he says, be alert, be sober, watchful, keep awake, pay attention. But not just so you can be awake. Not just so you can be like, I'm awake, I'm awake. There's a reason why you're supposed to be awake. What does Jesus say? Watch and what? Pray. Watch and pray. And he models this. If you go to Luke's account of this event, Matthew doesn't include it, but Luke does. Jesus tells the disciples after they're gonna fall, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, see, listen is the idea. Pay attention. Satan demanded to have you. And that you there is plural, it's y'all. Satan demanded all y'all, Right? Why? That he might sift you like wheat. Now, here's what's interesting. When Satan comes to Jesus demanding his disciples, what does Jesus do? 
He doesn't say, be gone, Satan, I am God in human flesh. The son of man, the son of God. He doesn't do that. He, what does he do? He prays. How does Jesus face the spiritual attack? He prays. He says, I have prayed for you. And that you is actually singular. Peter, I've prayed for you specifically so that you, after you all fail, because you're all gonna fail, you will turn and strengthen your brothers again. Jesus faces the enemy head on with what? Prayer. With prayer. And I wonder if we're honest, if the reason why we continue to fail in that area, this area, that area, is because we fail to pray. We feel like, okay, I read my Bible, I listen to my blog, uh, vlog, and I listen to some Christian radio, I'm good. And we skip the prayer. Do you think it's by accident praying is so challenging for some of us, myself included? I mean, we can watch a three and a half hour movie. I mean, Godfather comes on, man, I'm in, I don't care. All three hours, if it's on AMC, all six hours, I'm in. And I can pay attention for all six hours, no problem. I don't even need to get up to go to the restroom. But if I try to pray for 30 seconds, I'm asleep. Why? Because it's a spiritual battle. Because the enemy knows. He doesn't fear the Godfather, but he does fear you on your knees. And so it's a lesson, a reminder for us. Where's your power? It's not in your ability. Power is when we're on our knees, crying out to a holy God, God move. And, And I think maybe for some of us, Just a practical way to do this would be read through Ephesians 6, which is your spiritual armor. This is what Paul says. These are the armor of God. You got your helmet of salvation. Man, pray through that. Man, guard my thoughts. Guard my mind today, Lord. When I'm bombarded with all these things, with the helmet of salvation, what is true? What is good? Protect my heart with the breastplate of righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ. Let me use my faith as a shield to the schemes of the devil will come in that my faith, I'm resisting and firm in my faith. My feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But there's peace wherever I go. Why? Because if Jesus died for my sins and rose again, that my loins are girded with truth, my belt of truth that holds the whole thing together. There is truth and there is lies and truth is what holds it all together. And I wanna know truth. And we just walk that walk every morning to just kind of think about that and put this on. To pray for those strongholds in your life. Hey, you got an issue, a, a stronghold, this, this issue that keeps coming up? Pray it, pray for it. Ask others to pray for it in humility and dependence. You don't have to do that alone. Have these people come in, pray for me. I'm a jerk to my kids, pray for me. I'm impatient. I struggle with X or Y, pray for me. And pray it and pray it and pray it. You got a weakness, pray it. You got an issue, pray it. You got a strength, pray it. If you got nothing going on, pray it because you're gonna have something going on because we're in a battle. The point is this, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, you want spiritual victory, it doesn't come from more study and more church and more Bible study. It comes on your knees. That's where it comes. That's why the early church was so powerful, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers. And the world was changing right in front of their eyes. Right? And it's not just a one-time prayer, like praying for traveling mercies or hedges of protection or God blessing your you know, tomato sandwich. Jesus models persistence in this prayer. Right? And the apostles get it. This is why, again, Peter gets this whole idea. He learns his lesson. He says, the end of all things is there at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober. Why? So you can pray. He gets it. It's not just be awake. And then Paul says this, when you're fighting the spiritual battle, you pray at all times in the spirit. You pray. So Jesus prays persistently. He goes away a second time and prayed the same thing. Father, 
If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he comes again, finds him asleep. He goes again, prays a third time. Here's what's interesting about that. Jesus prays three times, Father, remove this cup, remove this cup, remove this cup, begging, begging his father. And what does God say to Jesus? No. No. You will drink this cup. And what does that tell me? It tells me this. If there was any other way for the sins of man to be forgiven, if there was any other way for God and man to be reconciled, for there to be redemption, don't you think God the Father would have been like, yeah, you're right. Fowler ain't worth all this. Let's just tell them to be nice. And if they recycle and, and are kind and go to church once in a while, they're good. We'll just make that. Is that better, Jesus? Yeah, that's a lot better. Okay, good. Let's do that. But there is no other way. If there was, God the Father would have said yes. But instead he said, no, you will drink this cup. Because God is holy and must punish sin. And so what does he do? He punishes Jesus instead of us. That's what he does. That's the reason why Jesus says, okay, your will be done if this is the only way. This, and so he, what does he do? He, for the joy set before him, what joy? The joy of following his father. Not the joy of the cross. For the joy that's set before him, he endures the cross, despising the shame. And guess where he is? Seated at the right hand of God because he was dependent, because he was humble, because he prayed. And so he tells the disciples, all right, it's time. Sleep and take your rest later. The hour is at hand. The son of man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And he's able to get up and go. And as he's speaking, Judas comes in, one of the 12, and with a great crowd, John's gospel says a cohort, which is 600 men, probably not a full cohort. Maybe it's 100 men, maybe it's 50. Either way, it's overkill for a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. And they come in with their clubs and their swords and the chief priests and the elders. And Judas had told them, okay, the one I kiss, the one I greet with a kiss, that's the, that's the one you wanna take. Why does he have to tell them? For one, it's dark and he can't see. Number two, Jesus looked like every other Jewish man in that day. I mean, he, it wasn't, he didn't say, hey, the one that's kind of glowing in the corner, that's the one. He's got a halo, you know, he's got like a white robe with a blue sash, that guy with a cool beard and blue eyes, that's him, right? No, they all look similar because he just was a normal, average, nothing out of the ordinary looking guy, which is one of the reasons they rejected him. Wasn't the 6'4 guy in the back. He says, I'll, I'll show you who he is by, by kissing him. It's a cheek to cheek thing, very cultural. And so he comes up to him and he says, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him and Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. And they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And this is just, Matthew just gives a kind of high level. If you read John's gospel, I really love how he kind of unpacks what happens here. Judas kisses, uh, Jesus asks him, who have you come for? And they respond, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus responds with the divine name, I am. And at his words, you know what happens? All, however many hundred of them fall back and fall on their faces before him. It's like the power of God comes from his words and they get on their face and they don't even know what happens. And then they get up and they're like, he says, who do you seek? And, and they say, Jesus of Nazarene. He says, that's me, I am, again. And I think because Jesus is clearly in control here, right, I mean, the disciples are like, wow, that, that was pretty impressive. That explains what happens next. So behold, one who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Matthew's a good, loyal friend and doesn't sell the guy out. But John's like, oh, it was Peter. It was Peter. Peter did it. It was Peter. So Peter, seeing Jesus is clearly in control, she's like, this is it. Grabs out his little sword, tries to hit the guy's head. Clearly not a good swordsman, better fisherman than swordsman. And he ends up slicing off this guy named Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Put your sword back in its place. Do you, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal, Peter, to my father and he will at once send me two legions at 72,000 angels? I mean, and, and, and he doesn't need 72,000. One angel in the Old Testament wiped out 185,000 Assyrians. Two angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you think 72,000 angels would do? Right? He said, I could call my father. He would send me. The, it would be donezo. He said, do, do, what do you think you're doing? I don't need, I don't need you to guard me, Peter. <laughs> he said, because here's the key. Look what he says. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Right? He closes the text saying this. But all this has taken place, what? That the scriptures of the prophets must be fulfilled. Even the disciples fleeing must be fulfilled. Earlier on, remember he says, the scriptures say, I will strike the shepherd and he will scatter his sheep. For Jesus, he is so in tune with what God's word says. And that's why he's victorious. Why do the disciples fail here? Even though they're sincere. Even though Peter's courageous. He's trying to prove himself because he is led by his emotions. What it feels good. What do I need to do in this moment? What's going to impress Jesus and prove myself? He's not following what God's word says. What does God's word say? That this shepherd must be struck. He's told them how many times I must go to the cross. Peter is even in his maybe well-meaning intentions. It's going against what God's word has said. And look, you, you continue to fight against what God's word has said. I can tell you, you will not live a victorious Christian life. You just won't. Well-intentioned, well-meaning. But here's what's interesting. So Jesus heals this guy's ear. He puts his ear back on. And the, that's the last miracle Jesus does before the resurrection. The last miracle Jesus does is taking the ear of someone, one of his disciples lopped off, being disobedient to the Bible, basically. And here, here I think the lesson for us is this. How many people are walking wounded in the world because you, a disciple of Jesus, have been an idiot, with your mouth, with your actions, maybe even with God's word. Maybe you're taking your little sword of the spirit and lopping ears off all the time, beating people over the head with your Bible, thinking that you could change someone's heart, thinking you could, you, that God needs you to defend him. God doesn't need you to defend him. Right? Spurgeon dealt with this many times. One time he said, he said, open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Right? You don't need to defend God's honor. You just need to live faithfully. Right? And let God defend himself. But if when you're led by emotions, what feels good, what, 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 what may be helpful to do this, see, that, that's gonna get you into all sorts of trouble like Peter. What does Jesus do? Why is he victorious? He's led by the scriptures. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. To Jesus said in John that the scriptures cannot be broken. These are true and these are not. I'm gonna live by what is true. And let me tell you, there's churches all across America and across the world that are drifting and falling away from this book. 
and denying what it says. And one by one, God is taking their lampstand and removing it. And there may be people in there, but there is no impact and influence and victory. Why? Because they have moved away from God's word. They have. I don't care how many people, how much money they have. You move from the scripture, which cannot be broken, then you lose the power of God and you lose victory. It's just the way it is. We come to the scripture. This is why one of our specs of a follower is we put ourselves under the scripture. How can a young man or young woman keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. That's what the psalmist says. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured, I have hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against thee. You wanna walk in victory? Then walk according to the scripture. You wanna walk in defeat? Walk in according to your word your way, your desire. It's, it's, just, it's that simple. Because the, the fruit of the flesh, Galatians 5, it tells you all what it looks like. Enmity, strife, immorality, sorcery, all sorts of bad stuff. The fruit of the spirit is the opposite. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the key to that, he, after after kind of listing off this, this, this junk list and this, and this good list, Paul says, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You wanna walk in victory? You keep in step with the Spirit. How do you keep in step with the Spirit? You keep in step with the Word which the Spirit inspired. And you start asking the question, God, what do you want me to do in this circumstance? How do I need to respond to my fill in the blank? How do I need to act in this, in this way? And you apply what God's word has said to that situation, which is why we spend time with God in his word. We listen to it. And we don't just to, just to make us smarter to say, okay, what does this mean for me today? Okay, so you say love my enemy. And we all know that. But see, that's not, just knowing that don't mean nothing. When you start saying, okay, who's my enemy? My boss, my neighbor the guy that's on the, the political other side of the spectrum. That's what you feel is like you're Okay, so what then does it look like for me to love my enemy? Then that's when you get in the nitty gritty. That's when we're starting to walk by the spirit and look like this. It's not just knowing the answer, it's doing it. But that's not gonna come if you're just gonna like, oh, I'm gonna read and be done. No, it's God, help me to be patient. Help me to be kind. Help me not to be this, that, the other, envious, jealous, all these things. Help me not to lose my mind with my kids when they ask me this. Help me to be a good steward of your mind. And it's doing that daily and continuing and continuing and continuing and continuing. That's what it looks like. And it may not look like much to the world. It may not even look like much to the church. But where did, Jesus lived the victorious life, right? And where did it lead him? To his death. He followed the scriptures to a T. Where did it leave him? Abandoned by his best friends. But that was victory. And so for you, it may not mean you're gonna be a millionaire with this and a car and a garage and a this and a boat and all, you know, whatever these things. But what it will be is God the Father will look down and say, that's my son, that's my daughter. And they're following me. See, that's what we want. It doesn't come from self-confidence. It comes from humility. It doesn't come from I can do it. It comes in prayer. It doesn't come from doing what you think and doing what you feel. It comes from following what God's word says. The battle is won before the battle. It'll be won before tomorrow, before Tuesday, by what choices you make today. The choices we make now and the choices we make every day. Let's win independence. Let's win on our knees and let's win by walking by the scriptures. And what I'm gonna do is I wanna give y'all some time this morning to pray. 
You, got to, you lost an hour of sleep, so you, can, you definitely need some more prayer. But we're gonna, give, I'm, we're gonna give you some quiet in this room. We don't do anything in quiet anymore, which is probably part of our problem. But we're gonna give you some quiet. No music, no nothing, which is hard, I know, for some of y'all. Can't even shower without music for some of y'all. But we're gonna sit in quiet and give you an opportunity to pray. Whatever God puts on your heart, whatever you know the need is, to pray. Not that long, 60, 90 seconds. But just us together as a church, praying, praying in the spirit, confessing sin, asking for strength, praying for a stronghold. And if after the service you need prayer, we got folks in the back that would love to pray for you. Go back there with them. They're there. They hang out. They'll pray for you. Uh, We want to be a church that, that has victory. We can plan and we can do all these things, but if we're not praying, there's no victory. So give you some time to pray. And then Gardner will lead us to stand and sing in just a few minutes. Let me open us in prayer. Father, use this time of just quiet in our spirits to pray, to draw near to you. And you promised you'd draw near to us, to persist, to seek, knock. And when you promise we will find that we'll be a praying people and seeing victory because of it. In Jesus' name.